We're talking about the problem of evil. Uh, this is the third in a, uh, or is it the fourth? How many? How many? Fourth. Fourth in a five-part series. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really thought I was going to be done. Uh, but, you know, God moves. And um, so uh, we'll finish it up next week. And you who are go- and I thought fishing opener was today, but it's, it's next week. So now God is telling all you fisher people to be fishers of men and forget the fish. Go to Cubs for the fish. Okay, so, but anyways, whatever. Um, the main gist that of, of what I've been getting at so far is this. I believe that the church accepted early on, around the 4th century, a, a, um, a theology that, that led us astray, that has done some damage. And the theology basically says this. Everything that happens, uh, however good or however bad it might be, is either directly or indirectly part of God's will. Uh, it all is part of God's will. Just talked to a man on Friday who was uh, a theologian of sorts and was insisting that it is close to blasphemy to say that, God, that the Holocaust does not fit into God's will. Everything fits into God's will. And you're insulting God if you say the Holocaust happened apart from God's will. And there's this idea, everything, uh, every terror, every nightmare, every, uh, every horror that's ever gone on in world history somehow fits into God's will, but God's will is perfectly good even though the evil that happens because of God's will is not good. And that, I believe, has done uh, some harm in church history. One of the things it's done is I believe it brings insult to the character of God. It it, it tarnishes the character of God. Among other things, it it, it renders ambiguous the difference, the infinite difference between God and Satan. And that's never a good thing uh, to happen. Uh, Why do you need a... uh, Why do you even need to believe in a Satan if God's already doing all the evil? Think about it. The Bible says in, in, in Luke chapter 7, verse 30, just was reading it this morning, uh, or maybe it's 31, where it says that the Pharisees rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves. But see, if this theology is right, then everything that happens is part of God's will, is part of God's purpose. So they're rejecting God's purpose as part of God's purpose. But if they're rejecting God's purpose as part of God's purpose, how could they reject God's purpose? Just wondering. Um, so it creates this incredible cognitive incongruity. Uh, and uh, it, it ends up tarnishing the, the will of God. It also does this. It undermines the reality and to some degree the urgency of the war that we are to be a part of. It undermines the reality and to some degree the urgency of the responsibility that the church has to be a player in this war. It to some degree undermines the effectiveness and the urgency of prayer. The truth that we can make a difference in prayer. We're going to be talking about that. It's very important, I believe, that we get our thinking right on this topic. And I've used this Littleton, Colorado incident to begin to uh, bring this out. So you got the book of Job. The book of Job. But the book of Job is all about. And just know this. Are you ready to worship God with your cerebral gray matter? Okay, because you're going to have to. We believe that within this church that we worship God with all of our body, all of our heart, all of our soul, yes, Lord, and all of our brain. Hmm. See? It looks different, but this is worshiping God, folks. We're going to think. So ready? You're going to have to, you're going to, have to be with me. You got to, I want a half hour of every neurological pattern in your cerebral gray matter. Do I have it? Say amen if I got it. Okay, here we go. Book of Job. Book of Job. What's the book of Job about? It's all about this. Job falls into this catastrophic, uh, miserable state of affairs. Job's friends blame Job. Job blames God. God says you're both wrong. The whole book of Job. He's going through this, this miserable stuff. 
Job's friends want to say, well, since God's all good and you're going through misery, then, it must be, then, then God must be punishing you. Uh, surely you are not righteous. Surely you lack faith. Every evil thing that happens to you is because you lack faith. So have you heard that gospel? The whole point of, book of, Job, of the book of Job is to say that that message is off base. They're blaming Job for the, the suffering that's going on. Job says, hogwash. I'm a sinner perhaps like the rest of you, but I, I'm, I'm not more of a sinner. I haven't done some kind of crime that makes me deserve this more than anyone else deserves this. So it's God's fault. God's arbitrary. You know, this must all be a part of God's perfect plan, yada, yada, yada. So they're blaming Job. Job's blaming God. When God shows up in chapter 38 of the book of Job, He basically says this for four chapters. You're both wrong. You're both wrong. Why? Because you don't know nothing. You don't know nothing. You don't know nothing about the universe. You don't know nothing about the cosmos. You don't know nothing about the warfare. What goes on behind the screen of heaven? He never does tell them about the dialogue between Satan and God in the prologue, which is about Satan assailing and attacking God's character. He doesn't tell them that. Job never does learn why he went through what he went through. And the reason he, 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 God tells him why he doesn't know why is because he does not have a perspective on the world that is big enough. He says, Job, did I get your counsel? Remind me here. Would you, uh, did, did you help me set up the stars, Orion, you know, that, 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 that constellation? I don't think so. Did you help me put the foundations of the earth, you know, and, and, and all that kind of stuff? I don't think so. Can you tame Leviathan and Rahab and Behemoth, who are these ancient, cosmic, ferocious creatures that really represented Satan in the ancient world? Can you contend with them, Job? I don't think so. And until you can, and until you counsel me on how to set the stars... Don't go about blaming me and attributing me to, for, for all the evil in the world. And Job's friends, you don't blame him. Because the world is just exceedingly complex, far more than you can ever imagine. And you just don't have all the facts. Evil is a mystery. Not because God is so mysterious, because we know God very well. He's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And not because he's, God's always punishing us, because the world's arbitrary when it comes to who gets what. The world is con- We don't understand evil because of the complexity of the world. You take the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10. Fascinating chapter. I encourage you to read it. Daniel prays for God to intercede on behalf of Israel. He's fasting and he's praying. For 21 days, he's fasting and he's praying, God, why don't you answer my prayer? And if Job's friends were around, they'd say, well, because you must not have enough faith. Or if Job was around, the old Job, he probably would have said, well, it must not be God's will. But an angel shows up 21 days later and says, Job, I want you to know, that uh, the minute you prayed, we heard your prayer, and God dispatched me to answer your prayer, but I was detained. I came into conflict with the prince of Persia, the spiritual power who's in charge of the area of Persia. There are territorial spirits. And this prince of Persia started fighting me. And I was fighting him for 21 days. Michael finally came down and, and released me and, and, and took over so that now I could come and deliver this message to you. But I've got to make it short because I've got to go back. And the prince of Greece is going to be joining this fight. And we're sitting there going, what, 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 what? Wait, wait, what is this? Star Wars or something? What it tells you is this. There are things that go on in the invisible realm that affect what goes down here in the physical realm. And we know next to nothing about that. If, if, if this angel hadn't showed up in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel never known, would have known why his prayer took 21 days to be answered. And when it was answered, why it had to be such a short little visit. Come on, am I, am I not that important? Don't you care about me, God? It's not about you, Daniel, and it's not about God. It's about these demonic powers that are interfering with God's will. You can thwart the will of God for your life, uh, Luke 7:31. Angels can thwart the will of God for the life. That's what demons are all about. That's what Satan's all about. And when you thwart the will of God for your life, because we're free agents, we affect one another. The world's complex. You can't reduce it down to a little formula, a little Pollyanna cliche to make everyone feel good. You're putting Band-Aid on cancer when you do that. You end up tarnishing the will of God and undermining the moral responsibility of people. So then you got Jesus, the whole ministry of Jesus. 
And this is what's got to be centrally important to us. When Jesus was going around throughout the whole Mediterranean area uh, and, and doing His ministry, He heals a lot of people, cures a lot of blindness, cures a lot of lepers, heals scoliosis, delivers a lot of people. He never once says, well, it must be God's will, nor does He ever once say, well, it must be your fault. What He says is, we've got to come against the kingdom of darkness. This is kingdom of... Apparently, there's more variables in the world, more things that decide what goes on than just God and us. There's a whole world in between. We are right here, right now, as we are sitting here. I, I got the, 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 the strong impression at the beginning of this service when I was looking at those masks out there. There's little reminders. We are in the middle of a warfare. Right now, we're in the middle of a warfare. I believe right in this auditorium, there's warfare going on. You know, uh, life is war. Satan is the god of this age, the Bible says. Jesus goes around casting out demons and tells us to do the same. Goes around casting out demons of muteness, demons of blindness. Those things are there as distortions of God's plan for creation. There's a war zone. But most of what is real, we don't see. Most of what is real, we don't know about. Which is why when things happen, we don't know why they happen. But we do know what we're called to do about it. Instead, the church has spent most of their time and energy trying to wonder why it happens and doing nothing about it. It's because they've got this idea that really, really, there isn't any will that decides things other than God. And that's where we go wrong. When you take a New Testament perspective on things, you understand why you don't know why. Let's talk about why we don't know why. Now we go to the technological advance. Okay, now can I get the lights off? Or are they already off? They're off? It's as off as they can get? Okay, can you read that? Up a little higher? Okay, here. I see... I want to get it so... Can we get it any, any darker? Okay, we're going to take an offering for a PowerPoint system here this morning. Uh, okay, well, read it the best you can. And, uh, you know, and if you can't, then just follow me. The incomprehensibility of an eight-second interval. I'll tell you why you can't know why. The reason you can't know why this kid gets killed and that kid doesn't, this kid gets cancer that kid doesn't, this person's healed by prayer and this person's not. The reason you can't know why is the same reason you can't know anything. No better, no worse. We don't know anything about anything. Are you ready to worship God with your cerebral gray matter? Good. Because here I go. Take any fact you want in the universe. Let's say an eight-second interval between two cars on any given highway at any given time. You go out to the highway, and just for the fun of it, I do this once. You, 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 a car passes, and you start counting. One, two, three. Eight seconds later, another car passes. Now let's get philosophical. Why? Why was there an eight-second interval between these two cars instead of a seven or a nine? Let's figure this out. Hmm. Well, first of all, we have to ask, what were they doing on the road? Why were they driving at just that time, at just that speed? Uh, where were they going? Why were they going there? And to figure that out, you probably have to know why they have the jobs they have, why they were late for work yesterday, and now they're trying to get early to work to make it up to the boss. You'd have to know the decisions of the boss as they were talking to the people. You'd have to know something about the upbringing of the kids so you could understand why they chose the job they chose instead of some other job they might have had right here in this location instead of some other location. You'd have to know something about the alarm clock that didn't work the day before, why it broke down, why they bought that brand, because they could have bought a different brand that works a whole lot better. You'd have to know something about why the person married the person that they married, who tends to talk quite a bit and quite fast, mind you, on, on morning, which makes them chronically late. When he could have married any other kind of person, uh, you'd have to know all the decisions, all the little interruptions, the phone calls, the sneezes, the coughs that went on that day, that got them on that road right there, right then, and you'd have to know it for both, for both cars. But we aren't even getting warmed up yet. It's like the Princess Bride. Wait, there's more inconceivable because you'd also have to know what happened 
the decisions throughout the whole day. You have to know what happened the day before that, all the decisions they made the day, the day before that, and all the decisions that everybody else made the day before that and that day, which affected their making their decisions. We are all interference patterns we learned last week. So we have to know everything that ever in, impacted them, not only that day and the day before, but throughout their entire life. Uh, if it wasn't for that little uh, you know, stoplight there, maybe he never would have met that wife and never would have caught her eye and they never would have got married and they'd never have these long, fast conversations in the morning, which makes him late for work, which is why there's an eight-second interval instead of a nine or a seven. But I'm not even getting warmed up yet. Because now you'd have to know something about that kind of information for all the drivers that are on that road today. Not only that day, but the day before. You'd have to know something about the weather patterns because the weather might be speeding it up or slowing it down and affecting it in different ways. And to understand the weather patterns, you have to understand how GM has been polluting the air, which is causing global warming, which is causing the weather, weather patterns, which affects the driving, which is why there's an eight-second interval between these two cars instead of a seven or a nine. And so on and so on. You'd have to know their parents and their parents' parents and every decision the parents ever made and every decision that anybody ever made that affected their parents. And you'd have to know that for every driver on the road. Are you getting the point here? In fact, you can logically prove that in about five steps, you're branching off to the point where you have got to know. To understand why there's an eight-second interval between any two cars on any given highway instead of a seven- or a nine-second interval, you'd have to know the entire history of the universe. Every detail of the universe, every sneeze, every cough, every leaf that ever fluttered in the wind, because it all goes into, uh, it all feeds into one another. For all you know, if it wasn't for the fact that that wife slugged her husband and he fell off the top of the castle and killed himself on a rock, if it wasn't for that, that happened in 1208, this would be 10 seconds instead of 5 seconds. So you don't know. Why is there an 8 second interval? This is why kids can drive you crazy. They keep asking why, 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 why. No, now you have something to say to them. Nobody knows it's the eight-second interval, Johnny, so will you be quiet? <laughs> Why? You don't know. You don't know, and you can't know, and you probably really don't care, do you? <laughs> but what it shows you is this. The world is infinitely complex. Get a grip on this. Ah, there's a beauty to this. The world is a mystery. It's not just the problem of evil that's a mystery. Why did I come down with cancer and not you? Why my kid and not your kid? Why, Why did this happen and not, not that? Well, we don't know. But that's not like the mystery of God's will or the mystery of a secret purpose, you know, throughout the universe or whatever. It's the mystery of reality. Uh, we don't take any fact and we don't, know, we don't know why it is the way it is. Because to understand why it is the way it is, you'd have to know everything about everything throughout history. The world is mysterious and therefore why does evil happen to particular people? That is mysterious. But know this, it's no more mysterious than anything else is mysterious. Why does your child come down with this disease? I know what God wants to do. I know how God wants to use you. But as to why you and not somebody else, that's like asking why an eight-second interval as opposed to a seven or a nine. Or why did that leaf out there flitter in the wind the way it did right now? Or why did that bug just go into my ear right now and not your ear? And why this bug instead of some other bug? We don't know. It's infinite mystery, folks. What we call knowledge is just push, pushing back the parameters of our infinite ignorance a little tiny bit. And that's true in every field uh, that, that you might ever look at. We don't know why. You can't know why. Why waste time asking why? We can know how God wants to use it and change it. And to know that, you've got to know the kind of things that count as variables. Now, follow me on this. Are you ready to worship God even more with your cerebral gray matter? Are you? Say amen if you're ready to worship God even more with your cerebral gray matter. Okay. I've got it here with me. Okay, look it. We're making sense out of this. Why would God create a world like this? Look at the kind of things that count as variables. Last week, we talked about irrevocable free will. Why does Littleton, Colorado go through the tragedy it goes through? Well, 
I don't know. I don't know the details. I don't know specifics. Why Littleton not somewhere else? I don't know. Why these kids not some other kids? I don't know. But I can tell you the kind of things that, that will help make sense out of this tragedy in a world created and governed by an all-good, all-powerful God. So one variable we talked about last week is free will. If God wants love as the goal of creation, He has to give us freedom because He can't pre-program love. And if He gives us freedom, He can't revoke it every time we're going to misuse it. So there, it means that God's will isn't the only variable that runs things. Every person has a little bit of free will. Every angel has a little bit of a free will. And whether or not your prayer gets answered, how it gets answered, how quickly it gets answered, or how slowly it gets answered, might depend on the free exercise of a free will by some uh, power over Minnesota. See? Daniel chapter 10. These free wills are important. So God gives us free will. A second thing. God is good. All the time. That's principle number two. God's universal good will. Here's what you've got to know. Everywhere, every, every place, all the time, God is good and He's working to good. It's not like God set this world in motion and said, Hey, best luck. Good luck, you guys. I'll meet you in a couple billion years and we'll see how it turns out. God is in love with this planet. He is in love. That's why He's fighting so ferociously to get it back. Uh, he's in love with this planet. He is always involved in everything, including the eight-second interval. God is present everywhere trying to bring people, they've got some free will, and angels have got some free will, but he's working to curb the evil to bring people towards good. His spirit is involved in every one of us right here and right now. God is more intimately involved in us than we are with ourselves. He was down there in Littleton, Colorado, but not somehow ordaining that these kids would get killed, but rather putting a block on it, bringing conviction to them, uh, putting stays on it. For all we know, and we won't know this until we get to heaven, but for all we know, if it wasn't for God's presence down there, we wouldn't have had 13 kids, we would have had 130 kids killed. You see? God's down there, not ordaining what happened, but keeping a check on what happened. He's, he has to work with free will, but His Spirit is influential. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 6, look at this. The Lord says this in Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood. He says, you know what? My Spirit's not always going to strive with the, with the human spirit. Uh, another 120 years, and I'm out of here. And in fact, you know, because their, 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 their imagination is evil continually, it says in Genesis 6. I'm going to withdraw my spirit. I regret ever having made human beings. In fact, I'm going to start over again. That's what he says. Read it, Genesis 6. What does that tell you? It tells you that from the dawn of history, God had been working with these people. Uh, they were choosing evil because they're free agents. And it was grieving God, but God was always working. He's always involved to bring a check to sin, to move them, to bring conviction, to put a stay on things. You find the same thing in Romans chapter 1. The Romans were barbaric, they were butcherous, they were, they were, they were licentious and all sorts of other bad things. God says this in verse 24. He says, you know what? There comes a point where God says, this is hopeless, and in His infinite wisdom He sees it will not pay to keep on striving with Him. I'm withdrawing. The worst thing that can ever happen to a human being is for God to withdraw His presence. If God were to withdraw His presence from this planet, you guys, say hello to Nazi Germany all over the place, instantaneous. God's presence is everywhere working. It's just that we get used to it so we don't notice it. But God is there. So God was working with these Romans. He loved the Romans, but the Romans kept on worshiping the creature more than the Creator. So God finally says in verse 24, go your own way. And in verse 26, go your own way. And in verse 28, go your own way. I, give you, I turn you over, do what you want. Someone said to C.S. Lewis one time, and he records this in his book, Problem of Pain. He says, listen, why does God bother us? If he gave us free will, why does he just let us go our own way? And C.S. Lewis said, that, my friend, I'm afraid to tell you, is exactly what God does. 
You want The Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 19, men love darkness rather than light. So God at one point says, you want darkness? Darkness you got. But know this, when you say goodbye to me, hello to darkness, you're saying goodbye to all joy, all peace, all that's good in life, all, that, all, all joy, you're saying goodbye to it. But if that's what you want, you go your own way. He gives us that ability. But what we've got to know is this. God is involved throughout the world, working for good, keeping a check on sin. His presence is everywhere, convicting, orchestrating, whatever. He doesn't turn us into robots, but His power is, is, is everywhere influential. This is not a de- God is not a deistic God who just says, well, I'll wind you up and let, let's see what happens. He's always involved. He's sovereign. He just is so sovereign, He doesn't need to meticulously control people to be sovereign. So it says in, in Acts chapter 17, he sets up the times and the seasons uh, and the rising and the falling of nations. He puts checks and balances on this. He's the sovereign God. And he gives as much freedom as, as, as needs to for us to be able to choose for him or if we choose to choose against him. And there's a third thing. And this is the power of prayer. And this is the one that I really want to hammer home. What decides what happens throughout world history? What decides how things get played out? Well, there's too many variables for us to know why anything in particular happens. From uh, a particular catastrophe to the, the flitter of a leaf out there in the wind. But we can't know the kind of things that, that, that determine what happens. And I know this. Whatever is evil in the world comes from number one. Whatever is good in the world comes from number two. And what, what I can do about it is number three. I like the way that came out. I didn't plan on that. Thank you, Lauren. Um, and this has to do with the power of prayer. The Bible, see, and this is why I, I'm so, I, first service I decided, I, I get so into this one, I'm so passionate about this one, I did not want to cram this one into the last ten minutes of a sermon. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to pick this one up next week, I'm going to lay some foundation here, and we're going to pick up next week. The power of prayer, we're going to talk about, and why it sometimes is so miraculously answered and sometimes not. Why it seems to be so arbitrary. Why we see it, well, we don't see it uh, answered more often than we do. Uh, those kind of things, what we can do about it. What I want us to see here at the close of this message is let's try to make sense out of why God might have made a world where prayer changes things. Here's why I'm so passionate about this. It's because prayer does change things. And when I say that, I mean not just that prayer seems to change things, not just that God wants us to think that prayer changes things, but it really doesn't. Prayer changes things, which means when you pray, things change, which means that if you don't pray, then things that could have changed won't change. Things hang upon prayer. One of the, I believe, biggest downfalls or most damaging features of this blueprint theology that says that everything happens according to the blueprint of God is this. If you believe that everything that happens is, is somehow God's doing, that it all fits into a plan, then your prayer really cannot make a difference. It really doesn't. Nothing really hangs upon what you do. Certainly nothing hangs upon what you do in prayer. And you may still, and you in fact probably will still pray out of obedience because the Bible tells you to pray. But until it makes some sense in your worldview to pray, you're not going to pray with the kind of passion and intensity and urgency that you otherwise would pray with. God wired us for congruity. Our heart and our mind wants to work in step with one another. But if i got a brain that has a worldview that says that God's going to do whatever God's going to do anyways, then my heart's going to have a lot of trouble getting passionate about praying, spending any length of time in intercessory prayer. It feels like a pro forma committee. Ever been on a pro... You know what pro forma means? It's Latin for according to formality. 
You ever been on a pro forma committee? It's a committee that you think, you know, they, they tell you. I made a snide comment about committees at Bethel College in the first service, and then I realized that I'm on TV here. And by the way, hello, TV folks. Uh, I never say hi to you, and I, I forget that you're there, but I appreciate you watching. There. Um, send $15 to Greg Boyd Ministries. Oh, okay. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Friends today. Uh, I don't think I make a very good TV evangelist. I'm just not slick enough. No polish whatsoever. Where was I even? You guys, get me off track. I, okay, where, where, what was I talking about? I was talking about... Oh, pro forma. Okay, yes. I made a snide comment about how I'm ADD and isn't that too bad. Uh, but when you're on a pro forma committee, I made a snide comment about Bethel, and, 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 and I realized that I, Bethel administration could be watching this right now. So I meant to say the opposite. Every college other than Bethel, when you're on a committee, it feels like you're just going through the motions. You, you, you talk like you're, you know, I meant to say Northwestern is what I meant to say, okay? <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Okay. But you're going through the motions, and it feels like a formality. Does this really make, does anything really hang upon what we do? Or will the bureaucracy operate the world the way the bureaucracy is going to operate no matter what we decide? See, we get this idea about prayer. Here's what I used to think about prayer. Um, until about 12, 13 years ago, it, it, I had this question. If God's all good, and He certainly is, well, then He always does the best thing, right? That seems to follow. If God ever did the less than the best thing, He wouldn't be all good. God's good all the time, all the time God is good. So if God always does the best thing, then when I pray, what am I doing? Am I asking Him to do something that, that is less than best? If I'm asking Him to do something less than best, He's not going to do it even if I pray. But if I'm praying to get him to ask him to do something that is the best, well, he was already going to do that anyway. So basically, I'm talking to the ceiling here. And people say, well, no, prayer changes you, not God, and it doesn't change things, but it changes you. That's the kind of cliche that's out there. But by golly, I don't want to be spending time at 2 in the morning changing me. Uh, I'm not going to get out of bed and, oh, God, help the missionary, but really I'm just helping myself. No. Uh, you know, when Jesus says prayer can move mountains, he doesn't. He didn't say it will change your attitude towards mountains. No, it, it moves mountains. I mean, there, there's, some, there's some real gist here. It makes a difference in the way things are. You know what I'm saying? So what are you doing when you pray? What are you doing when you see? And most people do not have a, a theological framework that makes sense out of prayer. It feels like this when you pray, Oh, God, will you save my Aunt Susie? Aunt Susie's in need of you. What are you doing? It's like God's up there and you're twisting his arm. And he's saying, no, I don't want to. Oh, please, God, save us. No, I'm not going to save her. Oh, God, you've got to save her. Don't feel like it today. You know, but keep on persisting, maybe someday. You know, what are you doing when you're praying? Okay, see, and until, you may just get used to not asking the question, because maybe for so long people said, ah, it's a mystery, mystery, mystery. But it's good, is it possible for us to have a theological worldview that makes sense out of prayer, that our heart will get behind it much more readily? Let, try this on for size, and this is what we're going to close with. Why prayer? God could do it all anyways. When we pray, Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, he's the Father. Couldn't he do it himself? And the answer is, of course he could have. And he could have run the world perfectly and not given us free will. But if he wants love, I submit to you, it makes very good sense for him to ordain that a lot hangs in the balance of prayer. And all of this is to show us how we, the church, have an awesome awesome, wonderful responsibility and opportunity to not figure out the problem of evil, but to do something about the problem of evil. And one of the main ways we do it is prayer, if we ever come to really believe in it. 
Love. The reason is love. And, and, and think about this. Why, why might God ordain a world such that there are things that He might want to do, like save Aunt Susie, but He won't do it unless there's prayer for Aunt Susie? Why might God set the world up like that? And I suggest to you it's for the exact same reason that He might set up a world where the mother of Aunt Susie can either bless her or curse her. Where what we do makes a difference with one another. This is the essence of love. It's the essence of moral responsibility. We, what we do affects other people on a physical plane. Okay, parents raising kids, husbands and wives, wives and husbands, pastors and congregations. What we do impacts one another. This is the interference principle I talked about last week. That is true not only on a physical plane, it's true on a spiritual plane. And when it happens on a spiritual plane, it's called prayer. So consider this. Why might God ordain prayer? Well, He wants a world where we are related to Him, and there is no relationship without communication. Therefore, God structures the world such that the need to communicate with Him is at the very center. There is no relationship without communication. Think about it. Either whether you communicate verbally or you communicate with actions, all relationship is about me expressing myself towards you and you expressing yourself towards me. That creates the in-between us, which, which is what a relationship is. If God wants a relationship with, with, with us, it makes very good sense for Him to set the world up such that our talking to Him is, is, is an extremely, extremely, maybe the most important thing that happens. You see? And so he makes a covenant. You know what? There are things that are not going to happen unless you talk to me because I really want you to talk to me. I could do it all on my own, but that would not lead to our conversation. Number two, empowerment. You cannot have a relationship with a puppet. You have a ventriloquist. There's no real relationship there. I can, you know, hi there, Sam. Hi there, Greg. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm doing really good. Well, you know, my, my ventriloquist skills are right up there with my artwork, all right? But here's the thing. There's no real relationship. You can't have a relationship unless this person has a genuine self and, and, and is genuinely empowered to uh, over and against you. You can't have a relationship with someone that you're squishing. You can't have a relationship with someone that you are depersonalizing. That's why, as I said last week, I couldn't have a relationship of love with my wife if everything she was doing towards me was a result of me putting a computerized microchip in her ear. I'm having a relationship with myself then, not with her. If, she, if I have a relationship with her, she must be a genuine person who can make her own decision, who is empowered over and against me. So it is in our relationship with God. This is the glory of God, and this is the sovereignty of God, that He dares to risk a genuine relationship with us, and that's why He gives us say-so. He gives us power. The Pharisees, it says in Luke 7.30, they, they, they thwarted the purpose of God for their life. He gives us, He empowers us to thwart the pur- His purpose for us, because unless we had that, we wouldn't really be people who would choose not to thwart His purpose for our life. We are empowered. God, therefore, gives us the ability to affect Him, to impact Him, to make a difference on Him. Why? Because He loves us. He also wants a bride who is empowered to do things. He does not want a milquetoast bride, a bride who just lays down and plays dead, a bride who's just a ventriloquist puppeteer kind of thing. He wants a bride who's, who's got character, who's got power, who's got sassy, because he wants a bride who will reign with him upon the world, Revelation 5.11, throughout eternity. We reign with him. Think about that. A co-reigner. That means this. The enemy once had his foot on our neck. Now God wants us to put our feet on his neck. That's what it is to be empowered. He wants us to really believe that we have say-so because we do have say-so. What we do and how we pray matters to the world. We're going to rule with Him forever. And get this. Note this. Not a down. Steer it into your brain. Prayer is 
the most effective way that we even right now rule with Christ on the earth. We, we say, Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are reigning here on the earth. We are in the process of taking dominion over principalities and powers, over sin in the world, over evil in the world, over falsehood in the world. Prayer is one of the main ways that we do that. And we are, when, when you pray, you are bringing your will in alignment with the Father's will, and that is what, how, how His will gets applied to this world. He's, he's in the process of gradually reigning with His bride on the earth. When you pray, know this noble warrior, my, mighty ruler, God is giving you you are doing the most noble thing that you could possibly do. You are saying yes to God Almighty. You see, you are entering. He allows you to be a co-ruler on this earth, and He is allowing you to have say-so in what transpires. So he, need, he wants that to happen, so He leverages a lot on prayer. There is a lot of things that I want to have happen. You have got to agree with me on it. You have to talk to me about it, and then it will happen. And finally, dependency. Without Him, we can do nothing. With Him, all things are possible. That's the principle. Amen? In prayer, we are empowered. But we are only empowered by being utterly, utterly, utterly dependent upon Him. The authority of the church is not an independent authority. The authority of the believer, know this, never go into battle on your own authority. You will, you will instead of mocking the enemy, you will be mocked. You have no authority on your own. All of your individual authority and all of our authority as a body comes to the extent that we rely on His authority. He wants a rule, the, the Lord wants a bride who rules with Him, but a bride who shares His crown. He has to give us that. He has to give us authority. He, all that we do, all that we shall ever do, all the war that we're involved in, all the victories that we achieve, whenever we are more than conquerors instead of victims, it's because we're depending upon Him and His authority. Prayer is not only a way of us being empowered to conquer the enemy, it's a way of being empowered to conquer the enemy by being utterly, utterly reliant upon Him, our Lord, our Savior. So he says, without me, you can do nothing. So if you're going to be witnessing to Aunt Susie, you've got to rely on me for that. Talk to me. Then we will together unleash the power of heaven to bring about the Spirit of God working in her life. God sets up the world so that we, it facilitates our relationship with Him, and a lot hangs upon what we do. One of the all-important variables. I'll close with this. This morning I was praying for Norm. I don't know why. I just got a word for. I just got a burden for Norm. I wouldn't do that unless I really believed that now who Norm was this morning was a little bit different because I prayed. Which means if I hadn't prayed, Norm, something would have been different. Now the deal is this: I can't know what difference I made. You see, the world's too complex. I don't have. Two views, one where I didn't pray and one where I did pray. I hope when we get to heaven, God does that. Here's what would have happened if you didn't pray, and here's what happened because you did pray. All that I know is what happened because I did pray. Okay? And, and others were praying as well. We usually don't see how our prayer affects the world, but you've got to know this, believe this, have faith in this, trust in this. It does. It does. It does. I believe that if it wasn't for prayer, we would have had 500, those bombs that those kids planted down in Littleton, Colorado would have gone off. I'm sorry for the 13, uh, but I, I know this, that God is present there, and it's, what, what affects the power of God more than anything else is when the people of God pray. There's still a lot of questions. still a lot of questions about why it's answered, sometimes not others, and, and some variables that, that, that feed into whether it's effective or not. There's a question and answer time this Thursday night. I encourage all of you who have questions about that kind of stuff to come to that. And then next Sunday, we are, we are, we are going to wrap this up. I'm going to close in prayer, but before I do that, I want to invite anybody. I want to give this invitation. The prayer team, if you'd come up here, 
If you, with him, all things are possible. If you're facing, and if there's someone here who's in an impossible situation, I encourage you to join in prayer with somebody here this morning uh, and, and, and pray about that and believe in the power of prayer. Let's close with a word of prayer. Would you stand? Father in heaven, uh, we just got to trust your wisdom on stuff like this. And sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't, Lord. But this one I think we see, Father. Open our eyes that we see it more clearly, Lord. That you have empowered us, Lord God, to be world changers with you, Lord God. You have called us to stand up, to intercede on behalf of our families, on behalf of our friends, on behalf of our neighborhoods, Lord, on behalf of our church. Father, I would pray that the blinders that have been on many of our minds and many of our spiritual eyes that have caused us to blame you for the evil in the world rather than calling out to you to do something about the evil in the world. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that they would fall off of us. Father, I pray that we'd see you as you've revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, for somebody here who thinks, God, that the reason they're going through what they're going through is because of something that's gone on in their life and they're feeling condemned, and it's not that at all, Lord. I pray that you'd set them free, Lord. I pray that you'd set them free, Lord God, from the self-condemnation that the enemy would bring upon them, Lord God, for anything in our minds and anything in our memories, Lord, that is lodged there, that the enemy aggravates, trying to get us to believe, to tear us down, to get us to believe that you are, that you are a hound after us and punishing us for some sin in our life. Lord, we here plead the blood of Jesus Christ, and we say that that sin is taken care of. Uh, hallelujah. And we come against the lies and the deception of the enemy. Lord God, that would distort our view of you and our, our view of ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, Holy Spirit, establish in our mind the clear view of who you are, the clear view of who we are, your bride, Lord God. And then, Lord God, be about empowering us to intercede in prayer, to change the world around us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for washing us. Thank you for setting us free, Lord God. Thank you, Lord God, for all you're doing in our life and in our families and in our world, Lord. We give you the praise. We give you the thanks. Now help us to go forth out of here as empowered, sassy brides of Christ to change the way the world is. In Jesus' name, and the bride said, Amen. Amen.